Welcome to Innovation File. I'm Rob Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. And I'm Jackie Wisman. I head development at ITIF, which I'm proud to say is the world's top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy. This podcast is about the kinds of issues we cover at ITIF, from the broad economics of innovation to specific policy and regulatory questions about new technologies. If you're into this stuff, please be sure to subscribe and rate us. That really helps. Today, we're going to talk about China and in particular, technology competition with China. What's it all about? And more importantly, what should the U.S. do? Jonathan Ward has been studying Russia, China, and India for nearly 20 years. His new book, The Decisive Decade, American Grand Strategy for Triumph Over China, will be released on April 25th, which is two days before our all-day conference on this subject on April 27th, which we'll link to in the show notes. The book has a focus on revitalizing U.S. and allied economic power, the role of major corporations and financial institutions in U.S. national security, and the return to peace through strength. Dr. Ward is also the author of China's Vision of Victory, a guide to the global grand strategy of the Chinese government. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be with you. We'll jump into it. If you can tell us about your book and how it differs from other things you've written. Absolutely. So the decisive decade picks up really exactly where I left off with China's Vision of Victory, which was really the first book to explain the global grand strategy of the Chinese government in their own documents and words to prove that it was global, to show all the different regions that were in play, I mean, really their vision of the future, which of course tracks a very long time frame out to the symbolic date of 2049. Um, and at the end of, the, of China's vision of victory, you know, of course, it made sense to talk about what are we supposed to do about this? So I really la- laid out uh, a few goals. I mean, one, the US has to win a global economic competition with China. Two, we have to unite the democracies in common cause. And three, we have to maintain military superiority over both Russia and China. And then when you think about 2049 as their ultimate destination, I mean, that's really a time frame that matters in their planning in a certain sense, but it's mostly symbolic. So what I said in the first book was this is really going to be won or lost by 2030. For America, this is a contest for the year, not 2049, but 2030. We have just this decade, I think, to win or lose this contest. So it's, it, it matters that we're now in this game. I mean, we weren't. I think when China's vision of victory came out, we were still deciding whether or not there was an issue. But now that's uh, something that's made great strides in our uh, policymaking communities and in our society in general. So having a theory of victory is the important step. And for, for years after China's vision of victory came out, I was always asked two questions. One, can they actually succeed at this? And two, what should we do about it? So the decisive decade is my response, in a sense, to to my own first book, which laid out their strategy. I mean, what are we going to do with it? Um, what should an American grand strategy look like across the entire spectrum, economic, military, diplomatic, and then, of course, ideas and ideology? You know, how can we create a U.S. grand strategy that will actually succeed against the, the real strategies of the Communist Party of China? Why do you think this is the decisive decade? Well, I think it has largely to do with economic power. I mean, this is, you know, for many years, um, people forecast that China would surpass the United States in the 2020s. And even though that idea has started to become, let's say, less popular in Washington with the theory of peaking China, I think still in the business community and in the finance world, you have many that expect China to ultimately surpass the United States. So that matters. I think we have to make sure that we never reach that turning point, that the U.S., in fact, remains the world's largest and most sophisticated economy. Um, I think handing that off to our adversaries would be, um, you know, an enormous mistake. I mean, we've already uh, lost certain games in the in the economic uh, arena, but um, you know, we have to maintain 
our position. And, and also many of the Communist Party's own strategies really culminate in the 2020s. I mean, military modernization has a great deal to do with this decade made in China 2025, of course, also slightly symbolic, but has a great deal to do with what they're able to achieve now. And I think really seeing them go from a regional power to a global military power, if left unchecked. I mean, that also happens in this decade. So I think, you know, if we wait till the 2030s to really get in gear, um, we will have lost the long game. But if we do it now with the time remaining, then there's still a real shot for America to offset and, and, you know, prevent what the Communist Party sees as a turning point in history where it becomes the dominant superpower. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, if we were to fall behind this decade, why wouldn't we be able to catch up or surpass them the following decade? Well, I think the real issue is that um, if they're able to consolidate their position in the world economy, I mean, in international trade, in global markets, I mean, if we really see, for example, the Chinese corporation take flight in global markets, as it's already done, I mean, you look at the share of Chinese companies on the Fortune Global 500, and it's increasing um, to the point that there are more Chinese companies than American companies. I mean, all of that, I mean, if that continues to move forward, and also, if we continue to engage China, this is the other side of it, you know, we're continuing to fund essentially the rise of our adversary to transfer technology. We're watching our businesses um, continue to engage in the China market, our financiers projecting that China will continue to expand for the rest of the 2020s. JP Morgan, for example, projects four to 5% growth for the entire of the 2020s, uh, notwithstanding what's said in Washington. So if all of that happens, they're going to have a a very different hold over the world economy, over its strategic industries, key technologies, and also over global markets. So, you know, we are not, for example, really competing the way that they are in Africa, Latin America, and other parts of the developing world. And much of their strategy relates to that. So there's a lot that we can do now that if we don't do now, I don't think we'll have a second shot at it. I mean, we won't have a second shot at removing China essentially as the the dominant economy and uh, trading partner, let's say, in the OECD. I mean, we're going to have to scale back our engagement with China and then also to begin a real competition for the emerging world markets. I mean, we don't get a second shot at that, I think, if we lose the 2020s. I don't disagree with you, Jonathan. I wish I did, um, because fundamentally, this is a very pessimistic message. Um, So we'll get to this question of whether we can really respond or not. But let me ask you a broader question, because one of the debates that is going on in Washington is how much should we be focused on slowing China down versus speeding us up? I get this isn't a Miller Lite commercial where it tastes great, less filling, you know, it tastes great and it's less filling. But I'd just be curious if you had to put a ratio on that, what would what ratio would you put on it? I think it matters a great deal, Robin. And the two pillars that I've laid out in the economic arena are really economic containment of China and then also rebuilding the United States and the allied sort of industrial base in the allied economies. And I think you have to do both. I mean, my bumper sticker for that is if it, it makes no sense to speed up your own car if your adversary is sitting in the passenger seat right, right next to you. I mean, that's what we're doing now. I mean, right now we're in an integrated economic situation. And what I think we really need to do is enter into a systems competition with the People's Republic of China. That's something that we can win. However, if we're innovating, they're stealing and they're applying it in an unrestricted way at scale in global markets. I mean, that ultimately is their path to dominance in the world economy. It's the path they've taken thus far. But if you start to separate the economies and do essentially strategic decoupling, not wholesale, but across the right industries, technologies, and also have a response to them in global markets, um, you know, if they're unable to commercialize, for example, stolen technology across entire sectors or even companies, I mean, there are many ways we can do this. I mean, economic containment, I think, is the right way forward. If we're just going to run faster and they're going to run faster and pick our pockets, we're going to lose that game very, very readily. Yeah, absolutely. There's 
you know, so much I disagree with Larry Summers on on a pretty much every every day when he says something. But uh, he recently pontificated on this and said, you know, we we should be focused only on speeding us up and not on slowing China down. And you hear that narrative a lot in Washington, and it, it's partly because. I think at the end of the day, the sort of unreconstructed globalist free traders who would put China in the same category as, say, Canada. Uh, we trade with Canada, we trade with China, so what's the difference? But I agree with you that we need to be thinking about both of those. Well, I mean, if I may add something to that, I mean, that it's very important that we also have a strategy that actually deals with their strategy. I mean, to, to say, let's just run faster, you're not actually addressing Communist Party strategy. I mean, we have to dismantle their global grand strategy. So I laid that out in China's vision of victory. I've revisited it in, in you know, more depth in certain ways in the decisive decade. But the bottom line is we have an opposing adversary strategy that we can still dismantle. But if we just run faster, we're not touching it, they're going to win. Um, and the other side of it, you know, for anyone who's, who still imagines that, that hey, look, engagement is, is a healthy way to create stability. I don't think anyone thinks it's going to lead to political change in China at this point. But for the sake of stability, I mean, let's not forget Economic engagement with China produced a first-tier military in the Pacific, and that's transformed the military balance. You know, I'm a historian of military decision making in China, essentially, as a Cold War historian. And you know, I mean, they they used their force they used their forces prolifically against their neighbors in the 1950s and 1960s when they were um, essentially an agrarian nation. So, so we're talking about a place that has the same, I think, you know, pathologies about the use of force. I mean, the Great Rejuvenation of the Chinese Nation is a direct continuation of Mao's New China. I mean, they have a variety of territorial disputes. They're building a military that's literally designed for combat with the United States. Those are not, um, I don't think those really factored into anybody's free trade calculus here. So, so we're living with a unique situation with a unique adversary that, um, whose leaders tell us on a very regular basis that they're preparing to fight and win wars. Now against who? Against us and our allies. So, so, you know, we have to take, we have to realize that the economic dimension I think is where we play to win. And at the same time, it's part of a much bigger picture that includes uh, military risks that are unique to the People's Republic of China. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the fact that we need to be following and, and, and countering, if you will, their strategy. You know, what's striking to me is we don't even have our own strategy. Our, our the capability, and this is not a it's not a criticism of any individual. Uh, it's a criticism of our institutional system to conceive of, operate create and manage a national advanced industry strategy. We simply don't have that. But to have that, I think your point is really, really interesting, that part of that strategy has to be looking at in detail our adversary strategy and countering their strategy with our strategy, not just a strategy. Well, we think AI is going to be cool. Let's do AI. Uh, it has to be integrated. Your thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely, Rob. I think that's that's in many ways the essence of the book is to provide a true counterpoint to the genuine CCP grand strategy. And, you know, and, and I think the beauty of it is, is, even though you've called it a pessimistic message, and I get it, I mean, that's sort of, um, you know, I wrote China's vision of victory out of a, a deep personal concern that we just weren't going to see what we were dealing with. And I think now we we recognize that there's an adversary. But with the decisive decade, it's it's about the fact that they cannot achieve China's vision of victory without our help. And that was one of the big revelations for me, um, you know, coming back to America, consulting on this issue, working with everyone from DOD to Fortune 500s, um, how integrated we are, uh, you know, how uh, essential we are to China's strategy. Um, you know, if, but if we stop helping them, I mean, if we are able to, um, you know, stop investing in China, stop providing technology and stop providing access to the vast majority of the world's 
developed markets, all of which are allies, by the way. I mean, the U.S. alliance system is over 50% of um, global GDP, and it's about 75% of global wealth. So in a sense, the alliance system is the bulk of the world's economy. Um, and their access to all of that, and their access to that on a continuous basis going forward is, is what would allow them to prevail. And, and you know, if we can get it together and get the wherewithal to start denying them access to the, the things that create their ascendancy, i.e. their economic engagement with us and the allied world, um, their world will be transformed. And, and we've done enough favors to the CCP. I mean, at this point, the litany of, of um, why to disengage is so vast. I mean, from genocide in Xinjiang to civil military fusion to support for Putin's invasion of Ukraine to a new Russia-China axis. I mean, it's just a very long list that, that I no longer have to you know, recite myself because I think everybody sees this. But what matters is that we change course and begin to do the right kinds of disengagement. And then, of course, pump all of that back into revitalizing the um, the alliance system. I think we can have um, a very robust uh, alliance-based trading community. I mean, to work with the bulk of the world's economy, to focus on the key industries. And, and you've been a, a leader on the, the subject of innovation in the alliance system. And I mean, these are the right ways to go. Um, but we can't do this, I think, uh, while continuing to economically support our primary adversary. And that entire you know, multi-decade strategy of engagement still, I think, is is creating very big advantages for China. Yeah, you know, it, it it frustrates me to no end when I listen to the science and technology policy debates with China, when you have all these people saying the key is to increase basic research spending in the U.S., which is what, what really the Chips and Science Act was, uh, the science portion of it. Two-thirds of that was just more money to NSF for basic science. That directly helps the Chinese economy. There's no question about that. Basic research spills over. It helps the Chinese economy. And we don't seem to have any sort of recognition of that. They're, they're, they're not spending that much on basic research. They're spending it much more on what are called later technology readiness levels. Thoughts on that? Well, look, I, I think you have, to, you have to look at how the whole system works. I mean, this is why um, one of the big emphasis, emphases of the decisive decade is the role of corporations and national security. And that's both on our side and on their side. I mean, one of the things that I learned over the years was how essential China's companies are to executing its grand strategy. Uh, I remember being in a, a business school course at Oxford alongside my PhD, where we had to do a leverage buyout analysis of a um, composite parts uh, aerospace company that was uh, from Central Europe that had been acquired by AVIC, China's major military aerospace giant. And you know, nobody seemed to care that, that this was a company building the jets that at that time were landing on the South China Sea Islands. People were interested in the, in the financials, you know, just how does it look as an LBO? Um, and then, you know, traveling around the Indian Ocean, seeing all the major infrastructure giants just building things up everywhere from Sri Lanka to the Maldives, I mean, under the, the auspices of the Chinese state. And then, of course, um, you know, the, the research that leads to things like the island building itself in the South China Sea was a major Chinese state-owned enterprise. So we have this vast targeting zone, and that's the Chinese state-owned enterprise. I mean, the SASAC corporations, the 97 SASAC corporations, that's state-owned assets and supervision commission. That's a lot of what's on the Fortune Global 500. It's a lot of what carries out the global grand strategy of the Chinese government. I mean, from Belt and Road to Made in China 2025 to military civil fusion and military modernization. I mean, a lot of this is, is, is done through the corporates. And then, you know, something else that I talk about in a lot of depth in the book is, is the level of engagement that our companies have in the China market now and the fact that they're participating, you know, wittingly or unwittingly, and there are cases of, of both, in, in building China's strategic industries and carrying out their national strategies. And you have companies like Caterpillar that have literally advertised 
that they are building the Belt and Road. And, and you know, how did we get there? I mean, they were brought, you know, brought up in front of Congress for that. And then, you know, just this this week, you've got, you know, I, I think of the past week is in, in March of, um, you know, a week that shook the world. You have a Russia-China meeting in Moscow that essentially signals a return of a Russia-China axis. And then, and then you have Tim Cook and Ray Dalio in Beijing, Tim Cook talking about Apple's symbiotic relationship with China, and then Dalio, who who you know very frequently talks about China as the place that's going to win the the geopolitical contests of the 21st century. So our businesses have become enmeshed in in the China market in a way that is, I think, creating not only systemic risk for the United States of America, but also you know risks for themselves. I mean, their strategies are going to be, I think, um, taken apart by the nature of U.S.-China competition. But at the same time, I mean, if we're able to focus on Chinese companies, both state-owned and state-backed, as the real targeting zone for for U.S.-China competition, at the same time, if we're able to to help our companies succeed in global markets and participate in in national strategic initiatives that back the right industries and technologies, I think that's where this is going to shake out. And it's going to become a battlefront that is very much about the role of corporations. So I think you and I may disagree slightly on this point um, because we've talked about it before. I'm very much in favor of U.S. companies selling things to China, not 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 sharing technology, but selling goods. Um, and so I don't have a problem with Caterpillar. Uh, they were they were they were going to build that infrastructure no matter what. If it if it was if they didn't use Caterpillar tractors or whatever you know bulldozers, they were going to use Chinese. So that actually, I'm glad Caterpillar's doing that. But to that point, I was look, doing some research recently, and the three major uh, construction equipment companies in China, all state-owned or state-backed, uh, basically have the Chinese market in, in, in a lockdown. Uh, 99% of the market is, is their market, which is completely unfair. They're massively subsidized, over $2 billion in cash. I would which is what we've already proposed, is, is re- refurbishing Section 337 of the Tariff Act that U.S. International Trade Commission operates. I would basically say, you can't sell any of that stuff in the U.S. We're not going to allow you to sell that your, your equipment in the U.S. because we can't sell it in China. And I'd ask the Europeans and the Japanese and everybody else to do that. So let's lock them out of our market because they're an illegitimate company in an illegitimate market. Well, look, I, th- I think that's um, that's right. I mean, we we do not want to be supporting the growth of um, you know Chinese corporations in our own markets. And I think if if you're able to lock out that part of the global economy, and they're going to go as they are already doing into the emerging world and into the Belt and Road countries, and you know even when China's vision of victory came out, I mean, one of the examples I had there was the construction and um, infrastructure companies. And the fact is, the league tables were totally dominated by Chinese companies even at that time. So you know they've had this outbound strategy. And the irony is, you you take something like um, you know, major U.S. OEMs who, who you know, I believe it was the Caterpillar strategy that said, in order to be the world's largest uh, company, we're going to have to succeed in the world's largest market. So they went into China whole hog. I mean, this is you know true of many companies. So and and that's how the technology gets transferred. That's how the um, you know the Chinese companies became what they are today. And then they're competitive around the world because they're backed by state capital. So you know, I mean, if you're a U.S. company competing. Uh, with Chinese corporations, it's not just that you're dealing with OEMs, you're dealing with essentially an infinite flow of Chinese capital. So so that's the problem. It's a totally different system. They're able to do this in, in a way at a much bigger picture, much more strategic level than we are. And it's how they come to dominate certain industries. And by the way, you know, who did the innovation? I mean, it tends to come from our side. It just gets recycled into the Chinese market. Um, there was a a Chinese uh, telecommunications executive that I met on a flight in India who told me 
how China was just a giant incubator. Companies would go in, the technology would get transferred, and then it would incubate in the Chinese market and go out into the world. And that's the long-term grand strategy. I mean, that's how their economic strategy really works. Um, you know, dual circulation is, is what Xi Jinping calls their overall thinking, you know, economic strategy now. I mean, basically to tighten the world's supply chain so they depend more on China and at the same time to reduce China's dependency on external technology and companies. So if they're able to keep on doing that, if we're willing to keep on funding that, then they win. And and I think this also is about global markets, because what really matters is if they're able to commercialize these industries um, globally. And, and we have a huge say in that from a policy perspective and, and more, but you have to unite the alliance system in order to do that. It can't be America alone. How would you assess the state of the current China issue in Washington? Are we moving in the right direction fast enough? Look, I think we've made an enormous amount of progress. I mean, there was a time when when it was a voice crying in the wilderness to talk about this, and we are no longer there now. It is, um, you know, a city that's awakened to this issue. So I think I think that's very very good. But my concern is is really a few things. I mean, one, Washington D.C. versus the People's Republic of China is a losing game. I mean, this is now about awakening the United States of America. We need, um, you know, our whole country to understand this, and we also need our business leaders to understand this. I think New York as the financial capital, as shareholders of our major corporations, and also as investors in China's companies still, um, and in the China market. I mean, New York needs to go through the same awakening that Washington did, and to understand the real risks and, and what happens at the end of this road. So that needs to happen. And then our country as a whole needs to get it. And that goes across the the, the whole of America. We have to get there. The other thing that I think is, is concerning to me is I don't think policymakers necessarily understand the importance of companies in in strategic competition. I mean, this is a unique competition, but at the same time, I think it's one that will be won or lost in an economic battle space. And that means that the U.S. private sector, you know, our $25 trillion economy, and the vast majority of that is our private sector, and a great deal of that is our Fortune 1000. So our boardrooms matter in a way that they never have before. I mean, one of the things that I enjoyed in writing the decisive decade was Arthur Herman's book about the businesses, you know, American businesses that basically helped us win World War II. And, and the fact is, China has already gone forward on bringing its companies into a national grand strategy, and, and ours are still all over the map. So, so we're going to have to get a much clearer idea of how economic power works, not just at the policy level, but in terms of actual commerce and business and finance. So I see there's too little of that. Um, and I also think we're getting into lazy theories, such as um, peaking China and demographics. I mean, part of the reason this is the decisive decade is they're going to have an entire, the entirety of the 2020s before the demographics set in. And they're going to get a lot done if we allow them to continue on this road. Um, so we can't wait for theories like that. I mean, we, we're going to have to take specific actions now. Yeah, it reminds me of the... And I don't mean to put I don't mean to bring a military analogy to this, but it reminds me of reading Winston Churchill in the 30s, where he was really one of the only voices in the UK that was warning against the rise of German militarism and nobody paid any attention to him. And then it was too late. So hopefully, Jonathan, people will pay attention and read your book. I know I will. And so uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you all so much. And thank you for the great work. you Thanks. And that's it for this week. If you liked it, please be sure to rate us and subscribe. Feel free to email show ideas or questions to podcast at itif.org. You can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on our website, itif.org. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at ITIFDC. We have more episodes and great guests lined up, and we hope you'll continue to tune in.